All right, guys, you are locked on Falcons. I'm your host, Aaron Freeman. And today we are talking about the release of Barkevius Mingo following child sex offense allegations, as well as answering a listener question about the differences between Dan Quinn's defense and Dean Pease's defense. You are locked on Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. So, guys, you know me, I'm Aaron Freeman. I've been covering the Falcons for many years, formerly at Falcons.com, RIP, still going strong, however, on Twitter at Falcons, and of course, the host of this illustrious Locked On Falcons podcast, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, right here on the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And today's episode of Locked On Falcons is brought to you by RockAuto.com, where you can find amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Visit RockAuto.com and tell them Locked On sent you. So today's episode of Locked On Falcons, we are reacting, uh, recapping uh, the timeline uh, on Saturday from Barkevio that led up to Barkevio's release, and we'll get into uh, what led to that. We'll sort of talk about if that move now will prompt the Falcons to finally try and upgrade their pass rush by going out there and getting a, another potentially better edge rusher uh, to upgrade that position. And then uh, later on today's episode, we will be answering a listener email about how wrong I was about the Falcons salary cap situation this off season, as well as how much more complex Dean Pease's defense is going to be than Dan Quinn's defense. So without further ado, let's sort of jump into the Mingo lead story and look at the timeline. If you missed it on Saturday, news broke Saturday afternoon around one thirty PM Eastern time pro football f- talk and, and, other outlets reported on this, that Barkevious Mingo, the now former Falcons uh, outside linebacker, was released on bond in Arlington, Texas, on child indecency charges, which were related to a sexual offense that, if convicted, um, carries up to a 20-year prison sentence uh, in the state of Texas. And we later learned that he was arrested on Thursday in Arlington, And the Falcons then released a statement shortly thereafter on Saturday uh, saying that they had just become aware of those allegations and were gathering information. And they take these allegations very seriously and will continue to monitor the situation. A couple hours later at around 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, Mingo's lawyer, Lucas Garcia, released a statement saying that the charges were completely baseless and that they were motivated by money or some other ulterior motive. Then around 8.45, Sports Illustrated was the first one I saw with sort of the details of the alleged incident, which allegedly occurred way back in July of 2019 and involved two teenage boys at an Arlington hotel. I won't go into further detail because those details do describe sexual assault. And, uh, you know, that's not something I'm going to openly discuss, the details of which on this podcast And then a few hours later after that, just after midnight, the Falcons released Mingo with a very straightforward statement saying, after being made aware of the allegations and gathering information on the matter, we have terminated his contract. And obviously the allegations against Mingo are pretty heinous. And, you know, should he be found guilty of them certainly deserves to be locked up. 
if not, then certainly a tough break for him. And to be clear, that's not a defense of Mingo. I just personally am not necessarily a big believer in trying people in the court of public opinion. You know, he'll certainly have his day in court and it'll be up to the judge and or jury as well as the legal system to prove his guilt or innocence. And I feel really no compulsion uh, to have an opinion on his guilt or innocence in the meantime. I did notice on Saturday some Browns fans on Twitter indicating that this isn't the first incident involving Mingo and, and underage boys. But after a brief Google search, I wasn't able to find anything that would corroborate that. So, uh, you know, I, I guess I have to take that with a grain of salt because you can't believe everything you see on Twitter. But, um, you know, obviously what he was alleged to do is, is, is terrible. And understandably, the Falcons wanted to distance themselves by releasing him. And, you know, this is the time of year where, you have this long period of time between OTAs and in, in mid June uh, to training camp at the start uh, or at the end of July, the start of training camp at the end of July. And essentially the rule is no news is good news between this period of time. And, you know, the less that happens during this time is better for not only the team, but also the individual players. And uh, obviously, you know, some bad news for Barkevius Mingo uh, is the, the easiest way, the most simple way of, of explaining it. So he's now gone and uh, we'll move on as the Falcons have done and, and talk about what's next for the team. Now that a roster spot is open at that position, uh, a position that was already considered relatively weak uh, on this roster. And, and does that now push the team in the direction of finally addressing what was considered a weakness on this roster. But before we get there, guys, I do want to plug the NBA side of lockdown podcast network, whether your team is participating in the NBA finals or is gearing up for the 2021 NBA draft later this month, you can find a daily podcast devoted to your favorite NBA team, including the Atlanta Hawks. Check out the lockdown Hawks podcast hosted by Brad Rowland on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. Did you guys know that Built Bar, the best tasting protein bar on the market, has a brand new flavor in addition to their several already delicious flavors? This week, you can purchase the new Built Bar flavor, which is Grasshopper Cookie. If you're a fan of the classic Thin Mint Cookie, you'll love Grasshopper Cookie. Gives you all the flavor without any of the sugar. And you can also get other great flavors such as coconut almond, mint brownie, cookies and cream, cherry barcia, double chocolate, salt caramel, coconut raspberry, German chocolate cake, orange, strawberry. Try them all with a mix box. And Built Bars are great because they're soft and easy to chew. They contain 100% real chocolate, so they taste just like a candy bar. My favorite, the coconut almond. Tastes just like an almond joy. And it's not just about their great taste. They're healthy, too. They're low in sugar and calories, high in protein and fiber. Head over to BuiltBar.com. Try the grasshopper cookie with the promo code LOCKED15, and you'll get 15% off your first order. Again, that's promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. So we talked about Barkevius Mingo and the Falcons Edge position quite a bit this past week, uh, discussing the edge position specifically on Thursday's episode as a training camp preview. And then on Friday, continuing a little bit, talking about the off ball linebackers and, and talking about Brandon Copeland and Michael Walker, two players that are currently considered backups at that off ball inside linebacker position, but could potentially be starting options at the same linebacker spot that Mingo, at least, you know, as of couple of days ago was presumably the front runner to be the starter for this Falcons team in 2021. 
And we talked about on Thursday how Jacob Tuity Mariner would likely be the top backup uh, at that Sam linebacker spot behind um, Barkevis Mingo. And so between JTM, Copeland, and Walker, the Falcons potentially have three in-house options that could come in and play that Sam linebacker spot uh, for them this upcoming season. And again, if you want to uh, hear sort of more the exact details on what that role entails, definitely go check out Thursday's episode. But basically the short version was that Mingo or whoever would be the starting Sam linebacker this year probably would be deployed more as a base run defender uh, that would play on the early downs and, and handle the run and coverage responsibilities at that Sam linebacker spot. And that position would be much more of a true linebacker in its role and his usage than necessarily a pass rusher that we typically associate with a quote unquote edge rusher. Um, but one of the things we talked about on Thursday's episode extensively was in the past how defensive coordinator Dean Pease, both in Baltimore and Tennessee, typically also in addition to that type of player, uh, which was uh, Courtney Upshaw primarily in Baltimore and then players like Kamale Correa in Tennessee – would often have a designated slash situational pass rusher uh, in Baltimore. That was Elvis Dumerville for the most part and Cameron Wake in 2019 in Tennessee that would basically come in on passing downs and be that primary pass rusher uh, and sort of rotate with that same linebacker when that same linebacker would go off the field in those sorts of situations. And, you know, that was a role and that was a player that was currently missing from the Falcons current group of players at that position with, you know, basically between Mingo and Stephen Means and, and Brandon Copeland based off of the players that are currently in-house. Those are the guys that had the best body of work to suggest that they could potentially fill that role. But none of those players seem to be ideal options for that. And we noted on Friday's episode that Mingo's last four teams even though he was productive on a per snap basis in terms of the pressure he generated over the last four years, those last four teams that he played with never really wanted him to be primarily a pass rusher on passing downs. And so it was the idea of, you know, whether Dean Pease and company knew something more that people like Bill Belichick and Pete Carroll and Chuck Pagano and Romeo Cornell, the various D coordinators and, and head coaches of those respective teams, you know, the idea that Dean Pease knows more than those guys seemed very unlikely. Um, so I think it would certainly behoove the Falcons to find someone that could be that designated pass rusher, uh, at least part-time in the ways that players like Doomerville and Wake were uh, in the past under Dean Pease and, and obvious candidates that have been discussed on this podcast. And I've seen others discuss elsewhere are players like Justin Houston and, and Melvin Ingram. Olivier Vernon's also available. Everson Griffin is a name I've seen brought up. Uh, Trent Murphy's another player that I've, I've seen thrown around. Um, and, you know, it's also possible that the Falcons, instead of looking for a, a designated pass rusher, they look for another one of those base down defenders that's more in the same mode of, of Barkevis Mingo. And I think that outcome would obviously be less optimal. But you do have players like Kamale Correa, as well as John Simon, uh, who also 
like Correa has experience with this coaching staff. And as I mentioned earlier, Correa basically played that exact same role that we presumably were expecting Mingo to play back in 2019. Um, and with $8 million, over $8 million in cap space, currently the Falcons certainly have enough room to make a move to add one of these players. We saw Ryan Kerrigan sign with the Eagles back in May on a one-year deal that was worth $2.5 million with an additional $1 million in incentives tacked on to that. So if the Falcons were to offer a similar sort of one-year, two-and-a-half to three-and-a-half million-dollar deal to someone like a Houston or an Ingram, you know, they would still have – you know, up to $6 million in cap space that would be more than ample cushion going in the training camp as well as potentially the regular season later this year uh, in the event that they have to make uh, other additional moves uh, further down the line. So time was going to tell if the Falcons do decide to do that. Obviously, they have a roster spot open given Mingo's release, but how eager they are going to be to use that roster spot to upgrade their edge rush, I think, remains to be seen. Hopefully they will, but, you know, as I say, hope in one hand and um, defecate in the other and see which one feels so fast. <laughs> a, a phrase that I have come to know particularly well as a Falcon fan over the last, you know, two, three decades. But uh, with that being said, that's a colorful image to put in your head as we move on in today's Locked on Falcons podcast. And we'll get into a listener question talking a little bit about sort of the Falcons cap situation and whether or not I was wrong for being as nonchalant about it as I was roughly six months ago, as well as getting into the differences between Dan Quinn and Dean P's defense and sort of talking about simplicity versus uh, complexity and versatility and, and all these various other topics as we wrap up today's lockdown Falcons podcast. But before we get there, guys, I want to let you know about the MLB side of the Lockdown Podcast Network, where you can find a daily podcast devoted to your favorite Major League Baseball team, including the Atlanta Braves. Check out the Lockdown Braves podcast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Rock Auto. And with ever-increasing numbers of makes and models, it's now impossible for your local chain auto parts store to stock all the parts you need. Why wait while the person behind the counter orders your your parts on their computer when you already have a computer with access to rockauto.com at home or already in your pocket. Save time and money when using Rock Auto. You'll spend up to twice as much for the same parts when you order from that chain store or car dealership. Meanwhile, rockauto.com's prices are always reliably low for every customer. Rock Auto is a family business serving do-it-yourselfers for over 20 years. They have everything you need, brake parts, tail lamps, motor oil, even new carpet, Go explore their easy-to-use website yourself today and find the solution to your auto parts needs. Go to rockauto.com right now. See all the parts available for your car or truck, right? Locked on in the how did you hear about us box so that they know we sent you amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. So both of our questions come from Josh Woods. His first one is, this is a question I've been meaning to ask you over the last couple of months. But just haven't gotten around to it. Can you do a look back on your thinking on the salary cap situation at the after the end of last season? It seems like I remember you not being worried about the cap and being able to retain key players and maybe even being able to spend some in free agency. But now we are obviously in cap hell. Did I misunderstand you or was the cap situation worse than you thought? No, I don't think the Falcons cap situation was worse than I thought. I was wrong on the Falcons being overly cautious about their cap situation, right? That's, you know, I thought the Falcons would be a little bit more proactive, a little bit more aggressive. They were not. And that's where I was wrong. But the, the cap situation itself was not 
as dire as their, I guess, caution would indicate because there was about $18 million in cap space that the Falcons kind of left on the table, uh, so to speak, uh, by not restructuring certain contracts like Julio Jones's and Grady Jarrett's contracts, as well as a couple of other deals that, that you know, that's $18 million that the Falcons could have wound up spending in free agency uh, to shore up some of their roster spots and, and would have made, um, you know, trades like Julio Jones pretty much a non-issue had they done that. Uh, and so they would have had plenty of space to, um, you know, sign their, their draft class had they done that. So my expectation entering the off season for the Falcons was uh, that, you know, and the reason why I was so nonchalant about their salary cap situation was because the expectation that they would basically retain most of their core pieces in terms of looking at their top six contracts on the roster with players like Matt Ryan, Julio Jones, Jake Matthews, Grady Jarrett, Dante Fowler, Deion Jones, and probably wind up doing a bunch of restructures and use up the freed money uh, to shore up some of the need areas in free agency and, and player names like Joe Tooney and Marcus William were a couple of names that certainly back in the winter I was throwing out there. And instead the Falcons opted to sort of basically retain their core pieces minus Julio, but even still they, they still are taking a significant dead money hit on Julio next year. Um, and chose kind of not to shore up their primary needs and basically just went for stopgap solutions. And if you want to be blunt about it, kind of just punting on it, seriously addressing any of their biggest needs uh, until next off season. And I think this gets back to the core issue that we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast. And I'm sure some of you are already tired of hearing us talk about, or at least me talk about um, is whether or not the organization really had a real strategy this off season and, and just was basically deferring until next year, all their big decisions. Um, and I think what's going to be interesting and something I've talked about quite a bit these last couple of weeks is what their plan is going to be next year when we get to next off season and how they're going to enact it. Cause you're still going to have basically the same cap situation that you had going into this year. Um, you're going to still have a bunch of high level contracts at the top of your books, basically, you know, all six, you know, with the exception of Dante Fowler, you know, five of those six contracts are still going to be counting a huge chunk of money towards your salary cap in 2022. You're just essentially now you're inserting Calvin Ridley's contract into that, uh, instead of Dante Fowler's. Um, and so are you going to then give big money extensions to players like Calvin Ridley, um, Grady Jarrett, Matt Ryan in order to lower their cap hits? Are you just going to restructure again? What are you going to do about Deion Jones's contract? In addition to the free agents that are hitting the open market, like Russell Gage and Foya Olakun and Hayden Hurst and Matt Ghana, are you going to wind up trying to pay those guys or are you going to let them walk? And so my question is, are you going to show the proactivity next off season that you didn't show this past off season. And I guess for me, it begs the question of why then did you not show it this past off season, which we can certainly discuss why that was because, you know, I think the primary reason for that is the belief that they needed a year to sort of evaluate all these pieces uh, before making any bold decisions, which is fine. Like I'm not going to sit here and say that's a bad plan, but it does make me wonder, you know, by leaving, you know, money on, on the bone, and if you wind up not winning as many games, did that cost you wins? And and what sort of long-term ramifications does that wind up having on your football team, you know, if you're not as successful uh, on the field uh, because you didn't necessarily put the talent around them? So um, that, that kind of is my big question. And we'll just sort of have to see how that unfolds because, again, you know, 
looking at their plan, you know, and, and part of the reason why I, I seem so optimistic or confident at a certain, at various points this offseason, the team was going to take a quarterback at four, because to me, their lack of spending this offseason and their sort of caution in regards to spending in free agency and in restructuring contracts uh, for the most part um, suggested to me that they were moving more in sort of the rebuild mode. Um, and, you know, we're trying to position themselves to sort of purge some of those bigger contracts sooner rather than later. And then Matt Ryan's contract being the biggest one of them all. And while I don't consider the Falcons to be in cap hell, if you do think they are, the number one reason for that is Matt Ryan's contract. You know, he alone is going to be counting about 20% of their salary cap over the next two years combined. Um, and so when you look at what Terry Fontenot said the other day on the athletic podcast and saying that rebuilding is not part of our vocabulary, but then you don't see Ryan's contract as an obstacle, or rather you see Ryan's value on the football field as a much bigger asset that outweighs the potential obstacle that his contract is, which, you know, to be clear, I think is a perfectly valid opinion to have. Then at some point you got to start putting the team around him. And I don't think you can do that without spending money. Um, and I basically I'm saying doing it the way that they did it this off season is not going to cut it long-term. That is not a viable strategy to build a, put a, a successful team around Matt Ryan long-term. You can get away with that this year because, you know, I guess there's not as much pressure on you this year as there probably will be in future years, but that's about it. You can only do that for one off season. And so it gets back to something that Marco, a.k.a. Vienna Falcons, and I discussed on two episodes last week, um, which is, you know, giving them that 2021 year to sort of figure things out. But then in 2022, you, you kind of have to start making moves. And, and basically what I'm getting at is it, to me, it feels like the team is kind of straddling the fence of like, we're not rebuilding, but at the same time, we're spending like where where we are rebuilding and it's like well, you can't do the best of both worlds either you're all in on the reload i.e the opposite of rebuilding which is we're going to spend money and make this team a winner sooner rather than later or you are rebuilding and that means purging contracts that means getting rid of matt ryan that means not paying players like calvin ridley and grady Jarrett, which i've heard some people over the last couple of weeks and months talk about and i don't think it's crazy to think that the Falcons, there is a scenario where the Falcons do let those guys walk. Both of those guys are technically under contract for 2022, but those are the final year of the contracts. And it's possible the Falcons could decide not to address their contracts next off season. And instead just let them walk in free agency or, or actively shop them next off season uh, instead. But I think that's a, again, I'm not going to say that's a good strategy, but it's a, certainly a possibility in large part due to sort of the unknown nature of how Terry and him see this roster. And, and they may not be as high on those guys as, as maybe probably we are collectively and decide it'll be better for the team in the long term to not drop 20 plus million dollars a year on their long term contracts. Um, but you know, if that's the plan, which I'm not going to sit here and say is a bad plan, it's not my, it's not the plan I would prefer, but we'll see how it all plays out. You know, I think you got to do a better job of acquiring talent to replace those guys than what the Falcons did this off season, you know, with players like Frank Darby and Taquan Graham or Taquan Graham. I'm sorry. So we'll just sort of see how it all plays out. But my expectation right now is that what I thought was going to happen in 2020 
One will happen in 2022, which is the team will be a lot more proactive spending money next off season than they were this past off season. But we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. So uh, Josh's next question is another question regarding the defense before Dan Quinn came in. I think Mike Nolan was the defensive coordinator before him. I remember players looking confused with certain assignments under Dan Quinn's defense. It would be simpler and players would just go out there and ball out. It seemed like they were simplifying assignments. Now with DMPs, I keep hearing about versatility and disguising what you're doing. A couple of questions arise from this one. Am I seeing it correctly that Pease's defense is more complex than Quinn? If so, could you explain the differences and what an average fan could look for? And two, does a simple defense work better or is it better to be more complex? And three, regarding versatility with players, is it better to have a guy who is decent at many things or really good at one thing? So to answer your first question, you know, yes, I think it's fair to say that Dean Pease's defense will probably be a little bit more complex than Quinn's. But, you know, I don't know if it's going to be like night and day different. Like, you know, if, if Dan Quinn's defense from a simplified standpoint is on one end of the spectrum and say Mike Nolan's defense is on in terms of compl- complexity is on the opposite end of the spectrum. You know, Dean Peace is probably somewhere in the middle and may wind up being closer to Dan Quinn than probably, you know, I think you're you're most people would guess. I don't know. But again, it's it's possible. It's somewhere in the middle. I don't know exactly where, but I, I'm guessing it, it, there's a realistic possibility that we could closer to, to Dan Quinn. But, you know, we talked a little bit back in January about Dean Pease's defense on the podcast and talked about how he stressed in his introductory press conference how he wanted to be simple on the back end. And what that translated to me was probably meaning uh, leaning a lot of bit on um, man coverage, which is usually what people mean when they want to be simple because, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out what your assignment is. Follow that guy. Right. So when we talk, when we compare Dan Quinn's defense to Dean pieces, even we got to be clear on what Dan, which Dan Quinn defense are we comparing? Are we talking about the pre Raheem Morris days, which I would probably label primarily the classic Dan Quinn defenses of, you know, what Dan Quinn was calling late in 2016, taking over from Mark Juan Manuel in 2017 and 2018. And then Dan Quinn taking over for the first, you know, half of uh, 2019 versus Raheem Morris, who was primarily responsible, not the only one responsible, but primarily responsible for the defense, you know, midway through 2019 and, and then into 2020. And so I think those defenses are the same, but different, right? Because I think Raheem Morris's defense did do a lot more disguise, did showcase more complexity with their pressure looks. Um, and so from that perspective, I don't know if Dean Pease's defense is going to be demonstrably different than the type of defense that Raheem Morris called over the last year and a half. Um, you know, maybe Pease dials those things up a little bit more than Morris did. Um, but, but I'm not necessarily sure that much is going to change from what style of defense we have played, you know, the last year and a half. I think in regards to the more classic version of Dan Quinn's defense, if we're talking about that, you'll certainly in Dean Pease's defense see a lot more disguise on the back end because Dan Quinn rarely disguised. I mean, Marquand Manuel did a little bit of that, but Dan Quinn certainly did not in 2016 and 2019. And, you know, what disguise means for the layman is basically the secondary shows a certain coverage shell pre-snap and then switches to another one post-snap. Um, the other thing that stood out to me about Dan Quinn's defense was his vanilla blitz concepts. 
I thought Manuel did a better job with the blitzes, particularly when it came to those nickel cornerback blitzes with Brian Poole in the lineup. And, and one of the things that Manuel loved doing, which was whenever the offense was in empty formations with an empty backfield. So, so no running back, uh, he would love to send Brian Poole on those blitzes. And I, I don't know if Manuel was great at scheming up and disguising his blitzes, but he timed those blitzes, particularly those nickel blitzes, particularly well, uh, especially in like 2017. Um, and I think, you, you know, you'll probably see a little bit more of that, you know, for me, when I've watched, and again, I, I won't pro- profess myself an expert on Dean Pease's defense, but when I've watched his defenses, like nothing has really ever really stood out to me watching his defense. Now, when I've heard Dean Pease talk about his defense, it sounds much more complex and much more, mm, I like what he, you know, I like what he's selling. But then when I sit down and watch the film of it, I'm just like, yeah, it's like any other D, de- you know, it's, it's nothing special in, in terms of its actual execution. But again, I have not sat down and watched a ton of it as, as maybe some other people have. So um, I am open-minded in that regard, but you know, specifically when it comes to blitzes, which I think is going to be a big part of the Dean Pease experience, particularly, you know, until the Falcons go out there and get another edge rusher that is a legitimate, um, you know, proven pass rusher. It, it always seems like we're in this predicament um, of settling for less, you know, less than ideal pass rushers, which was the case last offseason with the Charles Harris trade. And, and and until we upgrade that spot now that has been vacated by Barkevis Mingo, we're in that same mode anyway. But, you know, I'm, I'm not a big believer in the blitz being a reliable way of generating pressure, particularly when you don't have an elite secondary. Like if you have the Raven secondary and you have Marcus Peters and Marlon Humphrey, arguably, you know, two top five, top 10 corners, then yeah, you know, and one day I hope AJ Terrell is going to get there, but you know, I'm not super optimistic that Fabian Moreau is going to get there uh, anytime soon. So, um, you know, I think, you know, with blitzing, a lot of it is like, you know, for me, it's being able to time up those overload blitzes. Like if you're good at scheming pressure, you'll be able to get those overload blitzes and overloads for the layman again, is basically when you are able on one side of the offensive line to bring more blitzers than blockers are able to pick them up. So you'll, you'll get a free rusher and, and that can really be disruptive, but you know, getting those timely instances is, is easier said than done. And then the, really the second key to blitzing is because I think generally blitzing is not that effective going back to what I just said over the long term, like short, certainly short term, but we saw this last year with the Falcons blitz, which was very effective when Dean, um, I'm sorry, when Raheem Morris dialed it up starting in week six through, you know, week 10 in the bye week but then after the bye week it wasn't that effective. And I think what winds up happening is when you're presenting these sort of blitz heavy looks, it's kind of like you have to, it's more about your bark than it is your bite, right? Like initially it can be about your bite, but as the season wears on, that bite becomes a little bit less, you know what I'm saying? Cause teams start figuring it out. And, but I still think you have to, if you're going to be committed to the blitz, you have to be able to show, I guess, a little bit more bark and, 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 and show those sort of pre-snap looks that at least puts the fear into, um, you know, opposing offenses that you are going to bring pressure uh, in that regard. So that's kind of my thought process on blitzing, but it's still something I'm learning about. And hopefully I will learn new things on Dean P's that will surprise me and, and, 
you know, bring new wrinkles into this thing and, and continue my football education. Um, getting to your second question about, you know, simple versus complex defenses, you know, what's better. It's, it depends, right? Depends on the coaches, depends on the players. You know, I don't think one is inherently superior to the other. Simplicity can be good. Complexity can be good. You know, I think the extreme versions of either is, is less than ideal. I think probably the ideal is to be somewhere in the middle. Um, but where you sort of fall in that spectrum, veering more the simplicity or complexity, you know, I think depends on a variety of factors and to say one is better than the other without knowing those factors is nearly impossible for me to say. Um, your third question, you know, is it better to be, you know, a guy that's decent at many things or really good at one thing? Again, I think it depends. I don't think there's one size that fits all, you know, it depends on the player, depends on the position he plays, the scheme he plays in, you know, now, one thing I will note that when you hear me talk about player evaluation, when we're talking about draft picks, you'll often hear me sort of be a little bit more negative towards a, a player that is the quote unquote jack of all trades, but a net master of none. Because in my experience of evaluating players over two decades, you know, a guy's chances of sticking in the NFL generally are higher when he's really good at the thing or at a thing that directly translates to NFL success than being kind of good at things that don't always necessarily translate. For example, you know, let's look at two pass rushers. Pass rusher A is a guy that has an incredible first step that suggests that he has the potential to be an outstanding speed rusher, but may not be great at other things like hand usage, may not be overly powerful or any of those things. But I, what I do know is that generally speaking, success as a pass rusher in the NFL is often built on a foundation of explosiveness off that edge, which will allow you to get offensive tackles off balance. And once you can get those offensive tackles off balance with your speed, you can then build an array of moves off of that. So that's kind of your foundation. That's your bedrock as a pass rusher. But if you contrast that with say pass rusher B who has a decent first step and a decent power and decent hand usage, but none of those things are really outstanding that he can heavily rely on one of those things to be successful at the NFL level, you know, while that player may wind up having a higher floor than say pass rusher a entering the NFL, because he's able to do multiple things. Well, better than pass rusher a does, you know, pass rusher B is probably going to wind up having a lower ceiling uh, than pass rusher a, because his success is going to rely heavily on, his ability to have outstanding hand usage, outstanding technique, because he doesn't necessarily have the physical ability to, to really reliably beat offensive tackles on a regular basis. So, you know, pass rusher a might wind up being a Vic Beasley or Dante Fowler type while pass rusher B may be more of that Ade Ogundeji type of player. And it's not to sit here and say that pass rusher B is can't become a better player than pass rusher a, but I think it's generally a harder bet to make because essentially you're betting on something that in this instance is developing top-notch technique and hand usage that doesn't often develop, right? And, you know, it's it's a relatively rare thing that's going to develop in either player's cases. Um, And, you know, both players are going to have to develop in that regard, but at least with pass rusher A, he has the physical ability to fall back and lean on for his first two or three years in the NFL as that technical aspect of playing the position develops while pass rusher B does not. And so while both of their production probably will be sporadic at that time, you're more likely to get more sporadic production from pass rusher B because he's going to be unlikely to find favorable matchups where his 
you know, even though he may be better at those things in pass rusher A, uh, at the technical aspects of playing the game coming into the league, he's not going to have the technique enough to really overwhelm guys in the way that pass rusher A, that may have raw technique, but at least occasionally he's going to go up against a slow-footed offensive tackle and he's just going to run around that guy. Um, and so, you know, that tends to be a more specific example when we're talking about projecting players from college to the NFL. But now if we're talking about players, once they're in the league, once they've been in the league and established themselves after three, four five years, then I do think versatility becomes a much more valuable asset than say going up when comparing him to somebody who is a quote unquote one trick pony, so to speak, or a one note um, speed rusher or whatever. Like when we're talking about pass rushers, if we're talking about guys that have, you know, comparing two guys that have been in the league for four or five years and one pass rusher has a variety of moves and can beat you with speed, can beat you with power, can beat you with technique while another guy can only beat you with one of those things with power or speed or whatever the case may be. Obviously the versatility of, of the former player is more valuable. So I, it just kind of depends on the situation. Um, so I, I would say in general, versatility is not as valuable for projecting players from college to the pros. But once you're in the pros, if you do have versatility, it is more valuable to, to summarize what I was just talking about. So there you guys have it. And uh, you know, in addition to that, if you want to get all the sports news that you need in under 20 minutes, of course, the Locked On Today podcast hosted by Peter Bukowski has you covered, whether you're trying to catch up on Wimbledon, uh, the British Open, UFC, NBA, NHL, M- MLB, NFL, all the sports, all the sports, Tour de France, you know, I don't know what else is going on. But uh, I'm sure Peter Bukowski does know what's going on and we'll have you covered on the Locked On Today podcast, uh, which you can find on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. So there you guys have it. And tomorrow we will start a couple of I think we'll probably do a crossover tomorrow with uh, Locked On Saints host Ross Jackson getting his thoughts on the big storylines heading into the Saints season. Then I think we'll do another crossover on Wednesday with Locked On Hawks host. Brad Rowland to get you guys geared up for, I guess, game four of that series. I don't know what we'll do the rest of the week, but we got locked on bucks, locked on Panthers guest appearance coming your way. We got an NFC East sort of special coming your way too, as well. I don't know if that's going to be this week or next week, but uh, eventually we'll get back into the positional previews before training camp as well. So a lot of stuff in store for you heading into training camp, but we'll definitely have you guys covered on a lot of different topics, Falcons and non-Falcons related in the coming days and or weeks. So appreciate it guys. Till then.